from KQED. everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Kali. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The, the Cooler. Cooler. Is San Francisco dead or flirty and thriving? Think Peace writers have a lot of opinions about it, and so do we. I do have opinions. Mm, and we're going to be taking outspokenness tips from a literal queen and hearing why erstwhile 80s heartthrobs should be allowed nowhere near a phone. Before we get started, next week is our season finale. We want you listeners to be a part of it. And you can do that by calling our hotline with questions you have. Do you need advice? Anything you want us to talk about? Any prompts? Leave them in our Hotmail inbox. Seriously. The summer is coming up. You need advice. You know you need advice, okay? Yes. Let us guide you. Let us help you. And even if you don't need advice and you just have a question for us, whether it's really nosy and personal or just something about pop culture, we want to answer your questions too. So call 415-553-2850 to be a part of our season finale. We would love that. And this is your last chance. So if you were putting it off until now, stop procrastinating. Mm -hmm. This is it. Call the hotline and be part of our show. Everyone has a podcast these days. So if you can't be bothered to start your own, why not just be on ours? Totally. We want to celebrate you. We want to support you. We want to love you. Yes. Right about that. So without further ado, on with the show. Back in the days of the Wild West, disagreements often resulted in shootouts outside of saloons. Mm -hmm. And as Carly educated us last week, there's a long history of duels being used as a way to settle an argument back in the day. But these days, we disagree in other ways. Subtweeting or all caps on Twitter. Yeah, That's my default. Caps lock. Others write think pieces. A few weeks ago, that happened nationally around a central topic, whether San Francisco is donezo or not. Ooh, okay. I know we in this room have opinions because, Mm -hmm. Jamidra, you grew up in the Bay Area. I did. I have lived here my entire adult life. Carly, you moved here from England when? Uh, Eight years ago in 2011. That's called math. And you're really good at it. Quick maths. So we're going to unleash all of our feelings later in the segment. But for now, let's talk about what started this whole conversation recently. I mean, this conversation comes up pretty regularly. Every few years, people have something to say. But this time, the person stirring the pot is Karen Heller from The Washington Post, who wrote a piece called How San Francisco Broke America's Heart. It was a hard read because, you know, she went in, but she also illustrated a lot of the ways that San Francisco has been mutated by tech and extreme wealth. And for the people who haven't read it, some of the examples that she brought up are the Bay Area is home to more billionaires per capita than anywhere on Earth. Mm -hmm. What the That is a crazy statistic when you think about it. If you told me that that would happen to San Francisco rather than, say, New York or, I don't know, Monaco? Right. Like a one-bedroom here can run you like $3,700. Like it's insanity. It's bonkers. And it it loses perspective as well. You absolutely lose relativity to the extent where you're like a studio for $4,000. That's a deal. Sure. That strikes me as right. I mean, a couple, couple, I don't even know if it was years ago because we've been doing this for quite some time. Mm. But I remember doing a pit of the week around a boarding house 
situation. With bunk beds. With bunk beds. Uh, so there was like, people took it one step further than roommates and folks were like renting rooms and bunk beds. Yep, yep. And sharing a bathroom, like a whole college dorm experience. And the rent was astronomical just to live in San Francisco. It's cute here, but it's not that cute. Mm. So this is only going to get worse because all of these tech companies are going public now. You've probably seen these articles of like X amount of new millionaires are going to be born when this company goes public. Uber went public in May. Slack and Postmates are about to. So she talked about that. She also talked about a 2018 United Nations report, which took a look at homelessness Mm-hmm. in the world and in America. And this report calls out two U.S. cities for, quote, cruel and inhumane treatment, unquote, oh. which they deem to be, quote, a violation of multiple human rights, end quote. And mm. those two cities are... I can guess. San Francisco... And? Oakland. Oh. Okay, so here's the thing, all right? <laughs> Oakland is getting dragged through the mud because we are <laughs> right next to San Francisco. Right. Now, Oakland is not a saint in this, But San Francisco, the way the city treats the homeless people showing up, throwing their belongings in the trash, Mm -hmm. like that's that's a whole that's a whole nother level. Now, I'm not saying that Oakland is is like by any stretch of the imagination innocent in this because things happen there, too. But there are programs and there are even temporary cities that they built for people in Oakland. San Francisco is like not in our neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. it goes beyond this kind of institutionalized disregard for the homelessness, like you say, the clearing of the camps, mm-hmm. the throwing of the belongings, into this like really pernicious attitude shift. Like, if I hear one more person who has moved to the city recently complain about having to step in human feces mm-hmm. at a particular BART station, I will scream because you know what's worse than stepping in human poo? It's having to shit on the sidewalk yeah. because you don't have anywhere else to do it. And why don't you have anywhere else to do it? Hmm? Because maybe you had a place that you were living in and then Airbnb took it over and now you're being displaced or rents are going up and you can't afford to stay there. Y'all gonna get me taken Speak off. Speak the gospel. I just Speak the gospel. I have feelings about this. <laughs> I have this theory. It's it's like with any kind of adversity that people see and they want to look away from it. People want to look away from the homelessness issue because it's a little bit too close to home how close that is to us. That could be us after one bout of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. after one terrible breakup that leaves you literally without a home, after one bounced rent check, after one job loss. So there's that, and then there's this extreme wealth and like like huge buses that take you to Google and Facebook that bring them back from their campuses, quote unquote, back to the city where they buy these fancy condos that used to be like mom and pop shops. So those two things contrasting each other just makes it feel very absurd. And the fact that San Francisco is this place of progressive, empathetic values and that the feeling that I'm getting from people is like homeless people are an inconvenience mm-hmm. rather than human beings. And I understand that homeless people don't fit into your like Instagram aesthetic. They're not Instagrammable, but like you can't crop them out of your worldview. Like these are people who need our help. It's really disappointing to know that that much wealth and power exists right next to so many people who need help. There's so much money here. Are you telling me that there's no way that we can support and help? We can't put more money into homeless shelters or supports or put money towards programs to help people get off the street. It's just like you're complaining about it, but what are you actually doing to help, considering that a lot of the reason why this is happening is because of the impact that the industry has had on this area. What you were talking about, Jamita, reminded me of this meme that's being shared around where it shows in one column how people responded to the Notre Dame Cathedral Mm -hmm. fire and all the money that's being funneled into that and then the response to Sudan and the situation Mm -hmm. there. And it's just like interesting to see 
there's so much wealth in this country and what it goes towards. Mm -hmm. Oh, this historical relic is more important than people who are being massacred or all this money in San Francisco and people will tweet about how they feel unsafe because of the homeless people on the streets, Mm. but they will do nothing to help those people. Okay, so this writer from the Washington Post laid this all out, shared similar feelings as we just did. A few days later, San Francisco Chronicle's Peter Hartlob responded with a piece called San Francisco's rotting story is wrong. City is brimming with soul. And he pulled out similar SF is ruined pieces from the Chronicle archives that go as far back as 1874 Mm. to make the case that like this idea that San Francisco has lost its soul has been a broken record for over a century. And he laid out all of these great examples. You should definitely read the article. But basically his thesis is the city is cursed to always be considered a generation or two behind. Like if you think about the people who moved here in the 70s were like, oh, well, it was really in its heyday in the 60s when all that Mm. stuff was happening. And then maybe people in the gay community in the 80s and 90s were like, oh, the 70s were the time to be here. So like there's always this like nostalgia, even if you weren't here to experience it. And then Mission Locals Joe Eskenazi, who was born in San Francisco, had a similar take with his personal essay, which is called San Francisco is not dying. San Francisco is not rotting, but things are bad and they may never get better. Mm. And he points out that lamenting about this like lost golden age is a product of amnesia. He tells the story of his mom in the 70s going to a laundromat and some guy comes in with a Kahlua cheesecake. And if you think about just that story, it's like, oh, how great San Francisco used to be. Mm. But then he makes the point that that coexisted alongside two serial killers on the loose at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Jim Jones was recruiting people for a cult Hello. and taking them to Guyana mm-hmm. to kill them. Dan White shot and killed Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, mm-hmm. setting back San Francisco and the gay rights movement. Joe sums it up with this line. Quote, nostalgia is a hell of a drug. This city is to nostalgia what Miami is to cocaine. We mm. consume vast quantities of it uncut. And pure. Oh, well, snort that. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you ask anybody about the Fillmore back in the day, it was all black, all the time, yes. 24 hours a day. Jazz the West, music. right? Yeah, that's what it was. And then there was a wave of gentrification. So every few years there's a wave of gentrification. San Francisco is hot. Neighborhoods shift and move, you know. And then we had a tech boom. This is not the first tech boom we had. Back in the 2000s, we had the dot-com boom. You had Webvan. You had all, like, it was a thing. And then crash. Because San Francisco is such an iconic city, it's always destined to change. And I think we feel like things are falling apart, and they are, to be honest. But we feel more strongly because we're here. For me, the, the part that is bothersome about this transition now is that it bothers me when there is a desire to sort of like come into the city and erase the culture that already exists there. Mm-hmm. And so that's the piece that is related to sort of like the homelessness. And that is the piece that is related to like the culture that exists here is when people move to the city and they know or they should know what it is they're moving into and what they're getting. And then they want everything that existed before them to change to meet whatever freaking suburb they lived in before or they idealize this experience to be for them. That pisses me off. Yes. San Francisco is not Walnut Creek. <laughs> Oakland <laughs> is not Concord. If you wanted a quiet little suburb that doesn't do drum circles on Saturday morning, move there, please. Wow. You said it. I'm glad you brought up the idea of the Fillmore being this thriving black community and then gentrification had its way. I looked up the stat of like what the population used to be here Ooh, and what it too. is now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the current black population has dwindled down to 5%. Mm-hmm. In San Francisco? Yes. That's the wild. national average is 12%, just oh to give God. you an idea. And 
I'm going to tell you right now, as a black person walking through the city, you notice. Yeah. I'm like, it's just me. And they notice you because yeah. they're like, oh, can you be my black friend? And you're like, I have enough white friends. Can I touch Sorry. your hair? Can I, can I touch you're your like, hair? like, I'm not accepting applications. <laughs> so a movie that just came out that's getting a lot of buzz that speaks on this issue specifically around the black experience of being from San Francisco and being pushed out is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I saw it recently. It really hit home. There is this great scene towards the end of the film. He's struggling to keep a hold on this home that his grandfather built. These new white people have moved in and they're just like, oh, go away. What do you want? And he's like trying to spruce it up, like paint the windowsills. He just wants to be a part of it and they don't know how to deal with it. And towards the end of the film, he's on a bus and there's these two white girls who are complaining about like, oh my God, San Francisco's so dead and like, it's so over. I came here for like Janis Joplin, like vibes. Yeah, it's over. We're going to move to LA. And then he's like, excuse me, sorry. Do you love San Francisco? And she's like, what? What? And he's like, you can't hate San Francisco unless you love San Francisco. And I was like, boom, there Mm -hmm. it is. There it is. And so... I can't wait to you guys watch it. Everyone should go see it. But it did touch on a lot of the things that we're talking about today. When I first came here, I was like Sailor Moon when like her pupils turn into (laughs) hearts and stars. I was like, this is what I've been looking for. I grew up in Baltimore. It's magic in some ways, but like not magical for a queer person growing up. So finally here, I was like, yes, there's like artists making art and music and everyone's like creative and accepting and like talking on the street Mm -hmm. it was lovely then i remember like maybe two years in after school i was in the park one day and someone was like oh do you know like facebook's offices are here and i'm like oh (laughs) listen to this naive thought (laughs) oh Oh, that's cool that means that more people will move here and then more cool people the merrier you know like that's great a painful thought in hindsight and like the big one like instead of the earthquake that i was always fearful of moving here because when you're not from here, that's what you hear about yeah. San Francisco and also Full House. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and other things. Painted ladies, why not? Oh, yeah. I was always scared about this earthquake, but like the big one ended up being this like seismic shift based on tech and like how it like kind of ruined what I loved about A this seismic place. seismic cultural shift. Well, yeah. this is the thing. Like people have always come to San Francisco to get rich in something, mm-hmm. whether it's monetary richness or richness in something that they feel they didn't get somewhere else. It's moving to a place, literally stopping at the ocean and wanting to be filled up with something. That's always how it's been. And I think it'll always be that way. From the gold rush to now. Uh Mm -hmm. And like when it's based on acquisition, it does funny things to people and to people's attitudes and brains when you are wondering, what can I get and take from a place. Mm-hmm. And I say this as an immigrant. I came here for, quote unquote, a better life, found it. I'm one of the takers. The fear for this city, for me, is that it's just going to become really homogenous. There's a group of people who are coming here all working in the same industry. So what happens when or if organizations start to feel like they're not benefited by being in San Francisco anymore and they leave? Then those people who don't necessarily love San Francisco were just here for the job. Right. They leave, too. And then you have a situation like Detroit where you have rows and rows and streets and streets and blocks and blocks full of abandoned homes because when that industry left, those people left too. Right. So for all the reasons that we've talked about, I've seen a lot of friends and people I love leave. And I've been like white knuckling it, trying to hold on for all these years. And I'm like, I'm going to be the last one. I'm committed to this. And it's just become such a difficult place to live in. And there are other factors as well. But I... 
and Carly and Jameter already know this, listeners, but I am moving to New York next month. Pause so that they can react. Okay. Right? Insert reaction here. Insert reaction Process that. But don't worry too much because we're already in talks to keep the cooler going. We're not sure what that looks like yet, but the cooler will still be in your lives as long as we have a say in it. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other people with like purse strings that are involved yeah this stuff we're trying our best and we're hoping that the cooler can become a bi-coastal part of your lives but yeah it's it's sad that i'm leaving the city but it's like sadder that i won't be in the same room as you guys but just like celine's heart celine dion (laughs) will it go on sf will go on the cooler will go on yes there is a reason why the san francisco city flag has a phoenix rising from the ashes on it We'll take that as our mascot for mm-hmm. this podcast, too. Rise. Wait, I should say that in a Maya voice. <laughs> and just like that, we rise. It's the begin the pick. Guys, you know what that song means. I'm going to be handing out some plaudits and also some big fat zeros. Oh, okay. I'm going to start with the peak of the week because it's going to an outspoken, literal queen, not a metaphorical queen. Oh, a real one. Put some respect on her name. Since it's been a minute since we talked about Game of Thrones, Queen Cersei herself. Oh, wow. A.K.A. the amazing actress Lena Headey. I like that it's been a minute means since last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> we, we miss you, Game of Thrones. You do, do the mess. Oh, I, I don't, though. I don't. I'm glad we broke up because that was a mess. Yeah. It was a toxic relationship and exactly. I just feel so much better for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, I was, it was codependent, okay? I, li- I enjoyed my Sundays. Mm-hmm. So this really does symbolize the eternal struggle between good and evil. The angel on your shoulder and the drunken devil yelling and another thing on your other shoulder. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Lena Headey has just given this fantastic interview to the Guardian newspaper about how she really feels about what went down on Game of Thrones. And obviously, while the show is on, we've all seen those embarrassing, cringeworthy clips of the cast on the red carpet with microphones thrust into their faces being asked, so what do you think about season eight? And Mm -hmm. they're all with rictus grins saying how it's the best season yet and everyone's so talented who works on the show. And now we know this to be utter horse poo. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to talk about it other than Lena Headey. So she was asked... If you got drunk with David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the guys who made Game of Thrones. Don't mention their names to me. Exactly. And they decided to write the season themselves, which we're not even going to go into. So she was asked, what if you had a drink with these guys and if you got real about what you thought? And she said, I will say that I wanted a better death. Obviously, you dream of your death. You could go in any way on that show. So I was kind of gutted. She was gutted. I mean, for those who haven't seen the show, shame on you. Rocks on your head. Right. Killed my infrastructure. I mean, come on. She Masonry? deserved better. But see, here's the thing, though. As you mentioned, all of them 
all of the cast on the red carpet, various places, were, you know, clenched teeth talking about how much they love the show. So embarrassing. Now the last check has cleared. Right. The non-disclosure is over. Over. Royalties have been signed. They got paperwork. Royalties are coming. So they can say whatever the hell they want to. Right. Out. That out. I like that you said she was gutted and that would have been a better way to end that storyline. Somebody, I, I said it before and I will say it again. Somebody deserved that kill. Somebody Aria did. Arya, who? Somebody. Sansa. No. Hell, Jamie. No. Somebody. I thought he was going to batter her yes. to death with his big hand. Somebody deserved it. What about Nymeria, the direwolf? Anyone. Anyone. No. no. Seriously, I dream of endings. Much like she says she dreams of her death. Being so attached to that character. She is rather generous. She does concede that she thinks that they couldn't have pleased everyone, no matter what they did. And So to, please no one. That's, right? the, that's, the, that's the alternative? <laughs> and to that I say, Lena, you don't have to say that. You go on speaking your truth. Be outspoken. If you see shit, call it shit. So peak of the week to Lena Headey, who has the queenly balls mm-hmm. to come out and call it like it is. She's as badass in real life as she was on the show. Mm-hmm. And lest we forget, she got paid a lot of money mm-hmm. per episode to hold a goblet of wine and stand in front of a window. Yep. If that's not professionalism, I don't know what is. If that's not just my regular Wednesday routine, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> So we love her. Here's to speaking your truth. Thank you, Cersei. Uh, and we got to go to Pit of the Week. Yeah, Sorry, we guys. Every to. week. I, was know, just, I was just I riding know. high on a dragon that should have burned Cersei, Sorry. but okay. <laughs> Pit of the Week this week goes to once adorable, sensitive 80s heartthrob, now full-time Edgar Allan Poe impersonator, <gasps> John Cusack. Oh, okay. Well, crap. Um, <laughs> but let the dragging so begin, sorry. shall we? I mean, let me get this out of the way. I was a gigantic John Cusack fan. And I know that we had Chuck Klosterman in like a couple of years ago to talk about how John Cusack was like the guy for a whole like generation of mm-hmm. women, which I was just at the tail end of. So I bought into all that bullshit, right? John Cusack could have been... A 2019 Keanu. Mm. Guys, he could have been the unproblematic bae who just minded his own business and looked good. He could have been him. But no. I was going to say, cue Adele rolling in the deep. We could have had it all. Uh huh. We could have had it all. And we were rooting for him. We were all rooting for him. Were we? <laughs> I, I was. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. I was. <laughs> oh like, kind of cool, but okay. I'm with, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, with you. I'm with you on this. So. But just look at the heights of Keanu. He could have been there, right? The the will was the good will was there, like from schmucks like me. But no. So as the years have gone on, John Cusack has not made a good movie. Mm. His Twitter account was already he this hell yes <laughs> he has a verified blue check and oh my god it's like when you go to a senior relative open their laptop and they have downloaded every single virus in the world oh. and it just visually it's a hellscape and that's what his twitter feed looks like because it is this whole unholy soup of so far to the left they're kind of right wing retweets oh wow and oh, no. musings uh bernie bro downs oh and generally not enough say anything references out behind the scenes snaps for my liking so as if that wasn't bad enough this week he retweeted a crystally clear unequivocally anti-semitic cartoon what? Uh-huh. i'm not going to describe it but i want to quote my favorite gossip site celebrity <laughs> by saying it looks like the kind of thing that would have been published in the berlin gazette wow. in 1935 wow. that gives you some kind of idea of how gross this cartoon and he was. Tweeted it? 
with the comment that he added. Oh, so <laughs> okay. Number one, manual retweet. He literally wrote RT and then his comment. Follow the money. Which, if that isn't a Ew. disgusting, we're done. Centuries old trope. And of anti-Semitism, I don't know what it Joan, is. Joan, come get your brother. Right? So apparently she's terrible as well. Oh, well, <laughs> someone come collect both <laughs> the of them. Whole family, got to throw the whole I guess that's you. Out. You're collecting them that's right true. now. I'm, I'm getting them right now. Get into my wheelbarrow. And so people see him doing this, obviously, quite rightly, just gets dragged for it. And then comes up with this lame defense that you guys will definitely remember from a previous episode of The Cooler, and listeners may remember too, in which we talked about celebrities doing dumb things online on social media and then claiming that they got hacked. Mm-hmm. I said, see, I was waiting for that. Because uh-huh. I was like, he can't even say he got hacked because he actually commented in the retweet. But exactly. he's still going with that? But this is wow. the best. I kind of wish I could go back in time and update that segment to mention the fact that John Cusack claims that retweeting with a comment an anti-Semitic cartoon was because a bot got me. Girl. Sure. A bot? And so the bot wrote that as well? Uh-huh. I just... He said, I thought I was endorsing a pro-Palestinian justice retweet. Oh, I'm sure. Okay, well. Oh, I'm sorry to have to bring you that news. John Cusack officially cancelled. Oh, and well, here I was thinking a Netflix movie might bring him back. Mm. And here Shout I was not him. thinking about him at all. Exactly. <laughs> Don Draper, I don't think about you at all. Dot GIF. Dot PNG. Yes. JPEG? <laughs> all of them. All of, all of the file forms. Uh, okay, so I'm going to take us out. I have to be honest, I don't really listen to a lot of new music anymore. And hearing Emmanuel's Song of the Summer Contender Roundup, that was like the newest music I'd heard in a long time. And might I add that I heard two of those songs on the See? radio <laughs> that same week. And I was like, okay. Prescient segment. Hmm. I, I'm a big girl. I can admit my mistakes. I just don't listen to anything new. I tend to favor stuff on the older side. So if you wanted to talk about, I don't know, Rocksteady and Scar or soul music or anything that was made before, I don't know, 1975, then we'll be fine. But new music, I'm terrible at. So To be fair, most of it is terrible too. Right? (laughs) I mean, that Katy Perry song is good though. You loved that. You're like, don't play a Katy Perry song. Wait, why is my body doing that? There are a few bops here and there. What in tarnation? Mm -hmm. So I did what I always do, which is consult the youth, i.e. my 21-year-old brother. (laughs) He's been sending me some song recommendations. So, I mean, he might as well pick the song that sees us out. He's chosen Money by a band called The Drums. I think they're an exciting new band. Um, you might want to fact check that. Are you going to tell me they're not an exciting new band? I'm about to tell you that everything we liked 10 years ago is new again, apparently, because it is a great song. He's right about that. (laughs) But he did not discover that because it's been around for a decade. Are you serious? Or more. Well, we are in a a reboot era. Right. Okay, so now we are rebooting the song. Recycling Uh... 90s fashion, recycling bops. It's good. Um, do yourself a favor. Google the boys in that band. Some of them are cute. Mm. At least I remember. <laughs> well, your tastes like I feel like my taste has yeah. has yeah. changed now but that I've seen more men in my life. To be fair, Carly has taken us from the 1970s to a few years ago, so this is still progress. It's still progress, exactly. <laughs> guys. I evolve, I grow, but I don't revolve. <laughs> <laughs> And if anything, the title of the song "Money" is really quite uh, apt, given the topic we've been discussing this episode. Mm. Money, 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 money. Yeah. Uh, that's the Donald Trump theme song. Don't do that. Oh, really? Ooh. For The Apprentice, yeah. That's what they used. Okay. I am mm. offended. Moving swiftly <laughs> along. Fingers on that classic. That up. Without further ado, take us away. This band that my brother told me about. 
It's a brand new one. <laughs> Hugely new. Maybe Song of the Summer material. Who yeah, knows? Guys, 2019. Go and see this new movie. It's called Casablanca. Oh, I hear it's good. <laughs> this episode was edited by me, Emmanuel Hapsis. Big thanks to David Marcus and Susie Racho. All original music was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Woods. And if you miss us, call our hotline, like we said, 415-553-2850. Be in our season finale. We would love it. And also find us on social. Mm-hmm. Jameter is at Jameter Says. Yep. Carly's at Teacup in the Bay. Yep. And I'm at Excuse My Beauty. Yep. Look at you knowing all the <laughs> handles. Hey. Tweet us, subtweet us, whatever you need to do. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.